0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms,
3: Here, Open the five-day doors, pal.
2: Have we got complete video content?
3: Hello, Hal, hell, do you read me? Will you read me, Hal? Hal! Hal!
0: Hi, I'm Adam Volerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. An Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core.
1: From the earliest days of the medium, filmmakers have transported us beyond Earth's atmosphere. In this miniseries, we'll be charting cinema's greatest space stories... The movies where science fiction, fact, and boundless imagination converge.
0: Welcome to Eye of the Duck, a space odyssey.
1: And welcome, Sarah Welch Larson. Welcome, welcome back. back.
4: I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to be here in space with y'all. I think yes, this is the first space bound movie we've talked about. So it's really oh, nice no. out here. That's a lie. We did talk about alien movies, but like that's we true. Did. Yeah, we summarized Alien movies. Right. This is the first like time that we've been able to talk about a single movie set in space. And I, for one, am very excited about it.
0: And what a, for, what a space movie it is with humongous yes. uh, Alien 3 energy. <laughs>
4: yes,
1: it is closer on the Alien 3 spectrum, uh, for sure. Uh, but for listeners who don't know Sarah. Uh, She is a returning champion here on the show. I think this is your third episode with us.
4: Third time. Yep.
1: Yeah. Always happy to have you here. Uh, You're the co-host of Seeing and Believing podcast, Mm -hmm. Bright Wall, Dark Room writer, author of a book we both love, uh, Becoming Alien. And also you are a self-described sci-fi gremlin.
4: Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think that's a new, is that a new moniker of yours? I, I don't remember uh, seeing that last time we uh, we had I you on.
4: I think I put it on Twitter like six months or so ago just because I was trying to figure out something new to put on there. But I feel like Very it fits. Good. It's probably always <laughs> been true. <laughs>
1: Uh, this, I feel like, uh, is a, a special occasion. Uh, first, because it's your birthday, and we just wish you happy birthday off mic. Now we're on mic. Happy birthday. Mic. Thank you. Happy birthday. Also, uh, this is the first film I think we've ever discussed on the show that features uh, an insane clown posse song. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's our first Clooney, but uh,
4: (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say no.
1: It's much more important.
4: (laughs) First George Clooney, but maybe.
1: Oh yeah,
0: Mm -hmm. definitely (laughs) yes, definitely the first film we've covered with uh, George Clooney's ginormous ass. Yeah, Uh his
1: ass is just on full display in this film. i
0: actually, actually admire I, it I, I have uh there's there is a uh, there is stuff in the production history about Clooney's ass i'm not even joking
4: <laughs> i'm so excited for this
1: <laughs> i love that like he is i mean mainly just his ass is on display like way more than than uh than any women in the film i mean like they, mm-hmm. if they are objectifying anyone it's him and his his, his great perfect ass
4: it's a good artistic <laughs> choice, I think, on, on Steven Soderbergh's part. Also, probably my favorite George Clooney performance ever, maybe.
0: I, I think me yeah. too. This is uh I mean, I I mean for for me, I'm I mostly love him in, you know, the Oceans films and like, you know, mm-hmm. some of the stuff he's done with the Coens. But uh yeah, this for me is like, you know, kind of beats all of them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I tend to really love like idiot George Clooney like whenever he he yeah. plays like a hunky idiot I love how self-aware he is and like kind of the you know the the humility of him being like I'm the most handsome man on earth whatever but I'm gonna play like a, a big dumbass but here we have you know the the more rarefied uh genius Clooney right sad a, genius, uh, Clooney. sad genius and I guess i buy it do we do we buy that he is a very smart man
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. for sure. I buy he that he's a it. smart man, but he's also primarily a wife guy. And both of yeah. those things can be true at the same time.
1: True. And in real life, <laughs> seemed, that seems to be his new thing.
4: Good for him. <laughs> true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Sarah, uh, when, when we uh, reached out to a bunch of, of guests that we wanted back for, for this series, uh, you, you picked Solaris and said you really wanted to do this one. It, do you have a personal connection to this film
4: um only in that it's one of my all-time favorite movies probably ever um yes yeah i the tarkovsky got to me first so Mm -hmm. i i saw Mm -hmm. the tarkovsky solaris first um i think it was like a long weekend and i did a double feature at the music box in chicago which was great and then um i don't even know how i found out about this one because it wasn't really a movie that was talked about all that much or i wasn't aware of it when it first came out Um, and then somebody must have turned me on to the idea that like there was a Steven Soderbergh that was really sad and set in space, and also it was a Solaris (laughs) remake. And that probably was enough to sell me on it. Um, So I I probably didn't watch it too much later after the Tarkovsky, um, and I read the book right around that same time, too. So it was just a lot of very sad men in space, (laughs) Um, which is also kind of my jam. And I think... (laughs) At first I was, I was enamored of it, but I wasn't fully sold on the ending and I don't know how much Mm -hmm. we want to get into the ending, but I wasn't fully sold on it, but I kept coming back to it. Like this is kind of an earworm of a movie or brainworm of a movie, I guess, um, where I just, I keep thinking about the score and I keep thinking about the use of color and I keep thinking about the way that. George Clooney is able to express that sadness in a really like interesting and deep way without being really showy about it all that much. Um mm-hmm. and then the score ended up making it on my writing playlist, so I probably hear the score oh, maybe yeah. like every other it's day. It's so
0: good. It, it is, is such very, a good very score. Very good.
4: Yeah. Cliff Martinez was really doing like the Lord's work when he, yeah. when he composed this one. Yeah.
1: Kind of a, I mean he gets a lot of work, of course, but he's kind of an underrated guy, I think in that yeah. like you know you don't often hear his name mentioned next to like some of the other like big big time composers and and it's really it's really a nice lovely score it's so good it's also yeah. I will I'll just say this film is mixed
0: so like unbelievably well uh mm. yeah I only recently like set up the surround sound here and holy shit this film like it takes full advantage of a room full of speakers and that score especially is like it just envelops you. It's amazing.
4: Yeah. It's deep and it's ethereal and it's, it's haunting all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good.
1: So last week we, we spoke about the, uh, the original Tarkovsky Solaris. Mm. Um, And we both, you know, that film kind of like just kind of wrecks you. And uh, (laughs) we, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it goes without saying there's just so much to unpack in that movie. I don't think we fully uh, did it all, but, neither of us, uh, have read the original novel and Mm. I I wasn't aware that you read the novel. Uh, do you have a, uh, like a good memory of how the novel, you know, differs from the Tarkovsky and and this one?
4: Um, it's been a few years. It's probably been five or six years since I've read it. So it's a little bit fuzzy. There's a pretty heavy emphasis on color and, Mm -hmm. um, Mm. That's something that I keep coming back to. I think I actually wrote a piece about the color of both – the use of color in both Tarkovsky and um, Soderbergh's Solaris's for Brightwell Dark Room a few years ago. And um, the novel makes use of like color descriptions in a way that I think gets at the mindset of Dr. Kelvin. I can't remember if that's his name in the
2: book because it's been
4: a little while. Um, But it's also that very kind of cold level of of mid-century sci-fi where it it truly is almost more interested in the science than it is in the people who are dealing with the scenario. So it's a good book. I can see why Stanislav Lem didn't like either adaptation of his book. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think that makes perfect sense and, and he has every right to not like them. I'm a little bit colder on it, but I'm also a little bit colder on mid-century written Mm sci-fi anyway. So um, with a few strong exceptions, but I don't know. I think Soderbergh's version of this story just gets at the emotional core of what's going on in a way that Lem wasn't even trying to do, but that I still read into the story anyway. And Soderbergh's interpretation of that is something that resonates with me so strongly that I just... It's far and away my favorite version of this story. I would be very curious hmm. to see how another filmmaker would adapt it, because I feel like everybody comes away from the story with a slightly different takeaway and a slightly different viewpoint on it. But, uh, I mean, if anybody ever tried adapting this again, they would have some pretty stiff competition from Soderbergh.
3: Yeah. yeah.
0: I feel like it is a fool's errand to try and do this yeah. one again. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It feels pretty pretty perfect here. I feel like the, the series has finally arrived is is how i felt after watching this where i was just like (laughs) finally we're like properly fucked up alone and devastated (laughs) in the depths of space like this is why i wanted to do this series is to is to feel like this
4: (laughs) had you seen this movie before the series
0: no i hadn't um and it had been on the it had been on the list for you know forever and uh man yeah this just this worked for me on every level it's just yeah. everything i want from a film it's it's all here. it is like one I, of
1: those yeah yeah
0: like i can't wait to talk about in the production history talk about like the cinematography of this and how they did it because
1: it's just like
0: god it fucking rules it's so yeah. good
1: <laughs> soderbergh i feel like is one of those directors that really like when you get out of watching one of his movies you are like motherfucker i need to make a movie like yes right? but, you know like, yes it's just like there's this excitement in his craft um i had seen this uh years ago, I was on a plane going, uh, out of the country for the first time. And oh my God. <laughs> it's such an embarrassing, I was in my first like serious relationship and I was going to be away from home for like, uh, you know, like close to three weeks, which is the longest i I would have ever been away from my hometown, you know, growing up in New Jersey, like we didn't go very far. And, uh, I remember watching this movie and like looking out the window of the plane into like the black night and like being such like an emotional high school kid thinking about my high school girlfriend and being oh my
4: god <laughs> she's gone <laughs>
1: for literally three weeks I was like inconsolable. But that's uh, that's because, because of hormones. This film. Well, I mean, this film definitely brought it out of me, but no, yeah. I was—I was so fucking hormonal. It was—it was like nothing I've ever <laughs> since experienced. <laughs> like, just so such a strong. Yeah, I mean, I—I I, I was a moody little boy, but uh, one might say the perfect way to watch this movie, though.
3: I—I mm-hmm.
0: I think <laughs> so. Yeah, what you're describing sounds like
1: perfect viewing conditions. Um, so. On the timeline here, I just think it's kind of fascinating to to put this here that uh so Stanislav Lem's book comes out in nineteen sixty one and then Kubrick's film, two thousand one, and Arthur C. Clarke's novel, which kind of come out at the same time as nineteen sixty eight, right? Yeah. And then the Solaris Tarkovsky is, is what, seventy two? Seventy two, yeah. And then this is two thousand two. And I just, I think it's worth discussing. Um, so, you know, uh, Solaris the movie, I don't know how much, well, the book comes out before 2001, but I don't know where Stanislaw Lem is and his uh, judgment on this, but at least the Solaris Tarkovsky movie comes out partially like in response to Kubrick's film. It's like, mm-hmm. we want to bring more humanity into space. Like, let, let's let focus more on like the, the people up there, not the science. And then the way I see this movie, I, I, I'm kind of seeing it as like kind of filling in the blanks between like where Tarkovsky was and where Kubrick is. Because yeah. I, I think there is more of an interest in like the science of it. It's also more of like just an American movie. You know, it it, it has like that mm-hmm. more Western uh, audience leaning, like emotional, you know, classical structure and everything. And also, I think the way that Tarkovsky tells this story is purposefully very ambiguous and very kind of difficult and challenging because that's the kind of filmmaker he is. And I I don't think Soderbergh is as uh, interested in really challenging the audience to understand what's going on as much as he's interested in, like, moving the audience and, like, bringing out, like, the, you know the truly tragic love story that is at the heart of this of this story here I mostly agree with you
0: but I I would counter that Soderbergh has his like fair share of ambiguity in here like I don't think that you know I I think it's it's like you know comparatively this is a much more literal film than than the Tarkovsky one but I still think that for a for a Hollywood movie with a budget of this size set in space it's still relatively uncommercial and, and and ambiguous
4: and also received one of the rare Cinema Score F's, I think.
0: Is that true?
3: Oh, did it really?
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, audiences hated it, but I think it was sold what as more fuck? of a traditional <laughs> romance story. So I can see going in and expecting like some grand sweeping epic in space and then getting a movie like this. And if you're not emotionally prepared for that or if you're not open to, being, yeah. I don't know, decked <laughs> emotionally <laughs> by this kind of story. I can see that being a real turnoff for people. So I I don't begrudge them disliking that movie. I don't understand it because I adore this movie <laughs> <laughs> at this point. And it's only grown in my estimation over time. But yeah, audiences kind of hated it when it first came out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I will say that every guest that we asked to be on this space odyssey series almost every single one of them was like we want to do the book solaris <laughs> hell yeah and it seems like like word on the street is like this is a really great like forgotten gem um one might say a perfect movie for a podcast to talk about yeah <laughs> but yes. uh it is kind of it, it it's surprising to me that this has kind of been lost to time because i i, I mean i think if a movie If this movie came out today in this form, I feel like it would be like a a huge success. No?
4: I mean, I would hope so. I feel like audiences might be primed for it a little bit more if just because there have been a lot of really good, like more indie movies that are sci-fi adjacent and also about memory and loss and grief. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I think we're a little bit more willing to contemplate all of those kind of in a a more utre setting, I think.
0: Yeah. Uh and also I hope this isn't, you know, touching on anyone's, you know, scene territory and uh and I'll I'll back off of it very quickly, but this is such a good movie to watch after having lived through the last couple of
3: years. Yes.
1: Yeah, it is. <laughs> yes.
0: There are like lines of dialogue in this film spoken by certain characters where I'm just like, Yep, that's how I think about life now. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love the uh, the futuristic uh, world that Soderbergh has here. I mean, again, mm-hmm. in two thousand one, Kubrick is very interested in making like a compellingly like realistic future. And then when Solaris, the Tarkovsky film, comes around, it's just like it just pretty much looks like nineteen seventy two, but they're like wearing silly boots, right? <laughs> yeah. and mesh shirts, yeah, yeah, yeah the mesh, and the mesh shirt, yeah. right. And, yeah. But now in this, I feel like it, it is such a... I mean, it's almost like it, it reminds me a little bit of Blade Runner's take on the future,
3: hmm.
0: a little bit. But they also—I listened to a few hours ago, um, and I highly recommend anyone do this if they if they have access to it. But the the commentary for this film is Soderbergh and Cameron hanging out and like oh, being, cool. being bros and talking about the movie, and they talked about how they very specifically were trying to like avoid the the Blade Runner thing of like being. Uh, like world forward and like future forward and instead like cut right to the the interiority and the the Mm -hmm. emotional stuff at first and like the the key way they tried to avoid that was by a not showing you a ton of the future and b when showing you the cities making sure that it didn't rely on the kinds of things Blade Runner relied on in terms of like You know, um, flying cars. Yeah, basically, (laughs) like 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 trying to avoid like production design as story in that sense. Yeah, Um, Mm -hmm. and instead, you know, making instead of using the characters as delivery for that. Like, I think one of the clearest ways you can sort of see that difference is that Blade Runner opens with this sort of like you know, hyper capitalist, you know, view of like a city, everything's advertisements, like the whole planet is Times Square. In this, you don't see any of that. But then the moment you meet Dr. Gordon, she's like, Well, I worked at NASA until we were bought by a private company.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? So yeah, it's it's interesting to see how they they toe that line, basically.
4: It also feels like a very post nine eleven movie in a lot of ways, because I think <laughs> um Kelvin works as a psychologist and I think he's doing a lot of um grief counseling for large yeah, groups yeah. yeah i don't know if they're trying to imply that some other similar disaster has happened recently mm-hmm. in the movie's universe but it kind of feels as though the movie is simpatico at least with where we were at the time as well
0: yeah, yeah. i definitely felt that and also just love the sort of you know irony of a, a grief counselor who is grieving
1: <laughs>
4: yeah <laughs> but
1: this is one of the ways that i i feel like the film is is filling in the blanks like in the Tarkovsky uh Solaris the end of that movie I'm wondering like so is this guy a scientist or I mean I I I'm I'm hearing them refer to him as a, as a psychologist but like where is that and then literally like in the opening moments of this film you see you see uh this Chris Kelvin like as a grief counselor and so we're and and maybe that's just like the American audience in me like wanting more of that like uh uh, you know, establishing stuff, but you can definitely come to this film uh, as just a casual viewer and walk out of it like pretty much knowing what's going on, I, I guess, except for some some uh, some big sequences towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why don't we I mean, why don't we at least like piece through the differences that this film has uh, next to the Tarkovsky one?
0: Yeah, so we you know we meet Chris Kelvin. He's George Clooney super cool, smart grief counsellor. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's, he's practising on Earth and then he gets uh, a message from, you know, John Cho from uh, the uh, Wayland Utani Corporation, essentially. <laughs> comes, and, comes and knocks on his door and says, uh, we've got a message from your old friend, Dr. Jabarian up on yes. Solaris. And actually, we should point out the in in this film the station is named it is named in text and the name of that station is motherfucking prometheus
4: yes is it really (laughs) i noticed that for the first time this time around
0: yes (laughs) so this is our second prometheus
1: yes (laughs) i did not notice that wow
0: yeah it's uh when when you see jabarian's you know video call from from space uh it says prometheus uh you know, either Prometheus Station or something like that in the in the lower right corner of the screen. Um, and Jemarion tells him, you know, you got to get up here. It's extremely, you know, strange things are going on. I can't describe it. None of us can leave. Like, mm-hmm. please come. And so this company, uh, DBA, I think they're called, uh, sends, sends Kelvin up. And so, I mean, the first major difference between this and the Tarkovsky film is that he's in space by like minute nine.
1: Yeah, and it, and it kind of like... It clicks in as like uh, you know a, a kind of classic space movie idea. Like you are the one person who can figure out what the heck happened up there. It's like you know, right? A, a last ditch effort to help these these lone astronauts. So, so he goes up to the Solaris Station,
0: yeah, and and, uh, um, and immediately <laughs> finds a, a trail of blood. Uh, yes, as one does. As mm-hmm. one does, and then here's uh, here's someone listening to to Insane Clown Posse. <laughs> And he goes to investigate <laughs> and he finds uh, his first red flag, uh, Jeremy Davies. Uh, if you uh, go anywhere that is uh, isolated <laughs> and, and the and first person him. sees Jeremy Davies, highly recommend you just go home.
4: Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's so squirrely. Um, yeah, in this movie, especially. <laughs> I don't yes, know. he is. Yeah. I've always associated him with Lost because I Me think too. he plays a minor character yeah. in like later Lost episodes. Um yeah. So seeing this was a little bit of a shock for me because right. similar but still uncanny. Um, I think he also discovers Jabarian's body when he first arrives That's on right, he finds Jabarian's
0: body, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, in a room that um, seems like it's a morgue but is actually just the cooling system for the ship's AI. Which mm. is <laughs> very cold and upsetting. Yes, yeah.
1: Um, for gamers who are listening, uh, you might recognize Jeremy Davies from... The recent God of War, he was, he plays Balder, you know, the main villain of the first God of War game for, huh. for the, huh. uh, the new era. Uh, he's very good in that. Anyway, uh, so how long are we up here until Kelvin meets his dead wife?
0: It's pretty Happens quick, right? Relatively quickly. He also yeah. goes and he meets Dr. Gordon played by Viola Davis and, yeah. uh, and, and then very soon sort of like goes, goes to sleep experiences memories and dreams mm-hmm. wakes up and finds that uh that his, his his wife Rhea uh is is somehow back has visited yeah. him uh, and, 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 and like in the so tarkovsky film responds by jettisoning her into space
1: <laughs> yes the classic move that all men do <laughs> men will literally jettison their dead wife into space rather than go to therapy Doubly yeah. funny because he's a therapist. A therapist. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but it's such he, a funny gag. It's like, look, look in there. What's in there? And then they crawl in. <laughs> and the, the sound
0: upsetting. cuts out, and you can see her saying, oh, wow, it's so cool. And then boom, <laughs> <laughs> clicks the button. Away she goes. Uh, uh, no, nice it's devastating. Try. It's fucking horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the sound those, is still
4: uh, gone as she's floating away, and you, you can't hear her screaming for yeah. him to come back. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the
0: most upsetting
1: just, things I've, I've yeah, ever seen. It's so disturbing because the idea that, you know, a human being would treat another ostensibly human being like that just because they are, you know, brought upon by unnatural means uh, is just so upsetting. Like, this is a clear replica of his wife in all shape or form, you know, same actor, same performance, everything. And he has, I mean, the only thing that he can think to do is just, you know, shoot her off in the space. And then what happens to that replica? Well, it's, I mean... I mean, they, they muse that
0: perhaps she has just run out of oxygen in there. Yeah. But then they also muse that maybe she is just still floating around and you could pick her up on the way back to Earth. And That's
4: like, horrifying. Yeah, yeah.
1: And do they ever die if they're not... I mean, we know that you can get rid of them using these, like, whatever... Expose obliterator beans or, yeah. yeah but uh yeah very sad it feels
0: it feels much darker than like 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 there's something about the way that i guess just the way it's shot really because the exact same occurrence from the the tarkovsky film but the way it's portrayed here is is much more upsetting
1: yeah i think it's that silence right
0: and the fact that you can see her face as she's being shot out you know into into the atmosphere uh mm-hmm. Uh, And gets like, you know, slowly more and more out of focus, but you can still and you can't hear anything. but You can still tell that she's screaming and uh, Clooney is playing it as though he knows he's killing someone. So, yeah.
4: Yeah. I can't remember. It's been a little while since I've seen the Tarkovsky version. But I think Kelvin in that is a little bit more clinical when he shoots his, his dead wife out into space, too yeah there's
0: no like oh i'm tricking someone into you know going he's like he's just like get in go and then he yeah. he sends her off and then and then the scene becomes about him avoiding the fire from the uh, from the rocket
1: that's right yeah i mean the the kelvin in the tarkovsky film is from the start and we we spend a lot of time with him in the opening just kind of being like a cold like shattered person yeah. So, you know, seeing him react that way doesn't seem like all that out of character. But we spend the opening of this movie like hanging out with George Clooney and like telling, like you can tell he is a sad person, but he is a clinical uh, psychologist and he leads grief counseling. Like it's clear this guy has a heart.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think also we give him the like... Cultural benefit of being George Clooney. Yeah. like when he does this, we're like, what the fuck is George Clooney doing? Yeah, yeah. George Clooney yeah. wouldn't do that. You know, like yes. it 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 hits you uh in that way. But it also by this point, because he's had his first, you know, Solaris dream memory, we've also now seen him uh in the past before he has become this sad version of himself. Mm-hmm. And in the past, he's like classic, charming
1: George yeah. Clooney.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And their relationship is, uh, it's, it's really wonderful, like getting to know them as a couple and like how they met. And that's one of the things that I think this film really has uh, to its benefit that is missing from the Tarkovsky take on this story is like, we get to see them when they were human beings on earth, like happy together. Yeah. Not just like whatever this, you know, shadow of a relationship is that they have in space.
4: Yeah. 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 playful and flirty and sexy in a way that feels very real and lived in there's some great chemistry between yeah. these two actors yeah absolutely. also they meet on the l train in chicago i know most of this oh, movie really? was shot in la but the um train sequences in the background it might be um just added in post or something it is but
0: yeah the you, the train the train is a stage build but the, oh, okay. the backgrounds were shot in chicago
4: yeah, you can see the sign for Merchandise Mart in there. Um, oh, cool! And I used to work at Merchandise Mart, so I saw the <laughs> oh, cool. I saw the lettering, and I was like, I recognize that place, and I feel sad all over again. That was not a good job.
1: <laughs> oh no! Yeah, they have one of the best like meat cutes too in this. Where it's so it's, good, it's that feeling like when you enter enter a bar and you see someone who like you know just by looking at them that like the two of you are on the same wavelength like right mm-hmm. away, and you can tell that from their performance. And when he finally, like, approaches her, uh, her first thing that she says to him is, don't blow it, which is mm-hmm. just so good. Because so it, good. Because <laughs> it, it carries so much meaning of, like, we both know, like, that we are, like, good for each other. So, like, don't say the wrong thing. Yeah. Which is so fucking, yeah. It, this is one of the the more compelling, like, film uh, couples that, that we've covered on this show, I think. Oh,
0: yeah, for sure. So he jettisons her into space mm-hmm. and then he you know has some arguments and conversations with with jeremy davies and then goes back to sleep and then she
1: comes back and she comes back <laughs> And uh, this time and, he's not going to let her go
0: and this time he's not going to let her go he kind of immediately wants her to be sticking around and she immediately begins questioning her presence here and you know you know, why am I, you know, what? how did I get here? What's going on? And starts sort of wondering sort of where has she been in this interim and what has happened to him during that time as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she gets fleshed out in a way that uh, Hari in the Tarkovsky film doesn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We get to spend a lot more time with her and we get to explore her past, which uh, seems like, you know, she had a kind of uh, not so great, upbringing perhaps and uh, mm-hmm. and she seems like I mean she seems like a real human being but she also seems like uh, at times with Chris that like she's kind of falling apart and uh, and this central thing going on between the two of them that she is not prepared to marry him for some reason and, and something something is there and also not prepared to be a parent
0: because at right. uh, you know we also get the reveal during her sort of you know she looks out the window and sees Solaris and then in turn begins to experience memories mm-hmm. and uh we see in her memories one of the things we see is that she has become pregnant and without telling Chris has chosen to end the pregnancy and so we we see that it's you know she she can't commit to Chris she can't commit to being a parent and mm-hmm. is clearly just suffering from some kind of you know very bad depression that Chris being charming handsome George Clooney doesn't really know how to handle uh you know unless it's a patient. right
4: I love the complication that he doesn't know how to handle her at her worst um Mm -hmm. and I love that the movie doesn't vilify her for being like a quote-unquote difficult woman either yeah she's still a human being
1: yeah yeah and that kind of ultimately leads to her uh committing suicide in the past that uh and and realizing that she should be dead in the present right and he he leaves her because she uh goes through with this abortion without telling him and uh he lives in regret and she dies and then she comes back on this station and yeah you're right the plot is actually it's it's not that complicated i mean we're pretty much at the end of the the movie here right there there are some more like conversations about like how they can get rid of her. And, and uh, she's very insistent on that happening, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Chris, uh, on the other hand, is not going to go through with it. And he commits himself to not uh, sleeping. So they can't do anything while he's not around. He starts taking pills to stay awake all day and night. and uh,
0: While also making her take pills to, you know, stop her from thinking about, the the existential terror of being the echo of uh, of of someone's dead wife yeah um and then we also get the reveal that jeremy davies is not jeremy davies he's not doctor yeah. snow he is in fact <laughs> the 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 real doctor snow had a you know was visited by an echo of himself and the echo <laughs> killed him and we have been hanging out with the echo the entire time
3: mm.
1: Just
0: so fucked up.
1: Yeah. It's it's kind of funny too though that like of course this guy, like if he's gonna have a visitor, it's just gonna be himself. Like <laughs> he seems like a pretty like self-obsessed weird kind of dude. Oh, and that <laughs> his
4: his other version was so unsettling that he tried to kill himself as soon yeah. as his visitor showed up and then his visitor being him had to just kill him in self-defense. Like there's a lot of fun layers to that. I don't know if fun is the right word necessarily, but it's fun to think about even while it's really unsettling. Um, Yeah. I mean,
1: his frozen body is pretty fun. I like that, that image.
4: (laughs) On Jabarian, um, who's passed away before Calvin arrives on the station. Um, his visitor was his son who is also still at large still
0: running around. Yeah. Yes.
4: Yeah. And like a pretty young kid, um, which i also just find unsettling because i don't know um
0: yeah what's he eating who's taking yeah. care of him yeah yeah
4: does he need to eat i don't know
0: yeah and and dr gordon also has a visitor but won't um won't let them out of her 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 room so we never mm-hmm. we never meet her visitor we never know what's what's going on in there or what she's so afraid of and uh she's the most gung ho about destroying the visitors and and believes this you know we, yeah. we can't trust that this is you know a, be- a benevolent situation and and uh and also is is very pronounced in this idea that she can't leave the station until she figures out how to you know how how to take power over the situation and stop the visitors from coming uh because she needs to be smarter than the situation
4: I think she says outright that she needs to be able to defeat it Yeah and yeah. the line delivery of of the word defeat is just so good. Viola Davis is great anytime, yeah, but say, she's amazing. So good yeah. in this she's movie.
1: really good in this. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a welcome presence, I think, too, on this station, as compared to the Tarkovsky one, which is just all a bunch of like sad dudes. It's so great <laughs> to bunch have sad here.
0: assholes, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And another way that this film, I think, is kind of filling in the blanks is yeah, in the Tarkovsky version. Uh, you see a little girl at at one point in the film and we see a little person too. And we're not really sure like what the significance is of that other than to convey like, you know, this is a strange situation. These people are having guests. But now in this film, like seeing this little boy, like feels like it, you know, it clicks with what's going on with the story and it becomes kind of this haunting presence on the ship. This uh, like... I mean, it's one of the scariest things about this film, I think, of like the idea that there's just this little boy wandering this station by himself.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very shining esque. You know? Yeah. You could you yeah. could redo the whole film from that kid's perspective and it would basically be the shining.
4: Oh god. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, there's uh there's there's a, a woman in, in room two thirty seven, there's a guy that's killing his wife. That's uh, true. You know, there's there's all of that going on. There's also some great hallway shots. Uh, <laughs> the only thing we don't have is a tricycle yeah
4: there, and there's some characters that may or may not be dead or have been dead the entire yes. time yes
0: right yeah. exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah this this gets uh it gets you know it's very much a horror film at times um kelvin is also visited by jabarian at one yeah. point uh in the night uh although he he remains entirely in silhouette and so you know it's sort of up to you to decide like is is Jabarian visiting right. him? Is this purely yeah. just a dream, or is he's on this... a lot of drugs? You know? Right? Yeah. You know, is it? Yeah. Is it a waking nightmare, or is it even like you know Solaris communicating with him directly? You know, yeah. It's uh, you know, there's no way of knowing, but you know, he delivers some some good thematic exposition, and then mm-hmm. he and then he fucks off. Uh, kind of a <laughs> perfect waking nightmare.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think that is though the question that always presents itself in in both of these movies is does this consciousness, this, you know, this space of, uh, of, you know, this entity that they're floating through, this Solaris space, like, does it have intention? Like, what does it want from these people? Or is it merely just replicating their memories?
0: Uh, I mean, I th- I totally think that it, it has intention. Um, I could give you uh, my... My reasoning for that and and either of you could stop me if it's going to mess with your scenes but um i think the the thing that i think makes me think solaris has intention is that as the uh as the prometheus is crashing towards solaris at the end of the film which is what happens at the end that kid resurfaces and the kid is a visitor yeah. and he's mute you know he doesn't doesn't say mm-hmm. anything so he's like a very sort of like physical living representation of Solaris and as uh Kelvin is sort of like you know crashed on the ground and 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 collapsed the the child reaches down and like of course there's like the the religious imagery and that it's the it looks exactly like the creation of Adam but sort of like in reverse mm-hmm. the the kid reaches down and and gives him the choice to take his hand and he takes the hand so i feel like that to me says that Solaris is yeah. is, is 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 making him an offer and therefore has intent um and then, I guess if we just want to skip right to the the very end, what happens next is that he you know he takes the the child's hand, the mm-hmm. Prometheus crashes, and then uh, he wakes up uh, seemingly on earth, seemingly in the same you know apartment from the very beginning of the film. Uh, but of course, you know this is this is not Earth. he is perhaps not even himself anymore uh he he injures himself, he cuts himself. But the the cut disappears almost immediately. So he now has the same sort of healing powers as one of the visitors would have. And Rhea is there as well. And, you know, he, he sort of tries to ask her, like, what's going on in the same way that she had once asked him that. Mm-hmm. And she tells him that we don't have to ask those kinds of questions anymore. And, you know, they are, they are now going to be together uh, in their apartment on Solaris. Hmm. <laughs> very and and Soderbergh ending. like Tarkovsky cuts back and reveals the planet uh yeah. you know to us but unlike in the Tarkovsky film where it feels like this like horrific twilight zone ending here mm-hmm. it's played as something like kind of sweet and ethereal and uh yeah. you know one one might even you know ascribe sort of like a heaven or an afterlife to it
3: mm-hmm. I think you could mm-hmm. do yeah.
1: yeah and one of the key points that we should probably point out before we finish with the plot is that uh is Rhea does Commit suicide while she's on the station, in, in the same way that uh, that it happens, that Hari commits suicide on in, in the Tarkovsky film. Well, she, well, she uh, attempts
0: suicide in the same way that Hari drinks; she drinks liquid oxygen and, and and tries to end her life that way. But then, what really happens is that she, uh, Gordon uses the Higgs boson machine to uh, to annihilate her existence.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we have this really uh, compelling scene where she comes back to life in like this horribly painful way. Yeah. After drinking liquid oxygen, which, uh, yeah, it's another one of these really jolting images from this very like affecting film
4: with surprisingly little blood i think the most blood you see is probably also a hallucination because there's a moment when kelvin is is looking around the room and he's in kind of his fever dream from all of the drugs he's been taking to try to stay awake and the camera pans over to a wall that's completely destroyed and there's blood all over it and then it's perfectly repaired the next time that you see it
0: which is also kind of i think a nod to the tarkovsky film because in the tarkovsky one harry bursts you know at the stage at the Mm -hmm. earlier stage of her existence where she can't exist unless she is near him she tries to she literally bursts through a door like she breaks it with her body and has like superhuman strength and it slices her up but then she heals very quickly um so yeah it feels like a direct a direct nod to that uh but i love that it's played as like a hallucination because it is just so nuts that that would happen
1: you know there's a lot of good decision-making, I think, in this film. I mean, we it's were like joking- incredibly well-directed. It's Yeah. Yeah. But the, I think like tonally, I think, and just like we were joking about like seeing George Clooney's ass, but it's a good example of like, this could easily have been like any number of shittier, you know, films. Like we have this For idea sure. of this, like, you know- Your sexy dead wife has come back to life and like she is like all yours in space. Like she's walking around nude in your room, like and it's all I mean. And she's
0: totally obsessed with you. Yeah, Yeah. I
1: mean this film is nothing like that at all. It it Mm -hmm. it's very, very like insistent on like treating this woman as, like, a real person and and not objecting, object, objectifying her at all, even though, like, she is very much, like, a created object in this film. Mm-hmm. And it also could have gone in any number of, like, horror directions, too. I mean, like we said, we have this little boy, like, walking around the station. We have a lot of, I mean, uh, we have liquid oxygen being drunk. We have this Higgs boson, like annihilator beam. And I mean, this movie could have easily become like event horizon or something, but (laughs) like he's, he's really intent on like creating like what is essentially like a, you know, kind of lovely haunting little like love story. Right. Uh, just so happens that one of the, one of the members of the love story is a dead, uh, uh, space Spirit, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I really admire that. And yeah. It's very classy, mm-hmm. I think.
4: It's a very it's a very light touch and that must have been so hard to do because I feel right. like I mean, you it could have gone campy, it could have yeah. gone horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you nudge Rea's plight like in the comedy direction, you kind of almost get forky from Toy Story 4. <laughs>
1: yeah, like what am I? Why am wow. I here?
4: Exactly. <laughs> what <is> like this? <laughs> Which is horrifying in and of itself, but I'm glad that the movie doesn't like try to milk that for everything that it's got either. Like it is a very, very light touch, and yet she still has so much I don't know, um, she, she is an object and yet she also has a lot of subjectivity and she clearly rebels against her assigned position in the universe as being an object. And that's just, it's such a beautiful piece of character work that's done so lightly. And I think a lot of it is because we spend so much time in her head as opposed to in Kelvin's head.
1: Mm -hmm. That's true. We do get a lot more time with her than in the Tarkovsky version for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. They are very different films, I think. Yeah. But it's really cool that he adapted that movie. That he remade this in this way. I really like admire this film. Yeah. Um, but uh, should we get into our production history? Yeah, let's do let's, it.
4: I'm so
2: excited for this.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is ugh, this is such a cool movie.
2: Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate. nationwide at Costco or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY.
3: Can I help you? We're looking for Dr. Chris Kelvin. We've received no contact in the Solaris expedition for six months. Why not send in the security force? We did. We feel confident that if you can manage to board the ship, you can negotiate their safe return. Can you tell me what's happening here? I could tell you what's happening. But I don't know if I'd really tell you what's happening. That's not my son. My son is on Earth. And that's not your wife. Where did you come from? They are part of Sonaris. From Academy Award winners James Cameron and Steven Soderbergh. How long do you think you can go without sleep? Whatever you desire. You're being manipulated. Whatever you fear. Don't leave me! Don't leave me! It's not human and I'm threatened by that! Whatever you think. She's alive. Becomes real. All we know, it's driving us crazy so we can watch us kill each other. What does Solaris want from us? If you keep thinking there's a solution, you'll die here.
4: What if what's happening here started happening on Earth? George Clooney.
3: Please, no! Unlock the door!
4: You don't know what you're in for. All
0: right, Solaris, written by Steven Soderbergh, based on the novel by Stanislaw Lem. Directed by Steven Soderbergh, with cinematography by Steven Soderbergh under the pseudonym Peter Andrews, and edited by Steven Soderbergh <laughs> under the pseudonym Marianne Bernard. That's so funny. Yeah. I love
1: him. I
4: love yeah. him so much. <laughs> Does Why? It all... Why the pseudonyms? I believe they're the names of his parents.
0: Yes, it's the first and middle names uh, of of his parents. So basically, really the nice. the reason this comes about is because when he's making traffic, which he also he he shoots that, and uh, uh, as well as writing and directing it, he wants it. He wants to be credited as written, photographed, and directed by Steven Soderbergh. And basically, the Writers Guild would not let him do that. And so then he thought, okay, well I'll just move my uh cinematography credit elsewhere and put a different name on it and the reason he wants to put a different name on it is because he thinks that having your name in the credits more than once devalues having your name in the credits. Hmm. So he he just That's wants strange. to have the one big written and directed by Steven Soderbergh <laughs> and then, you know, cinematography by Peter Andrews and then edited by uh Marianne Bernard. So
1: Wow. Yeah. Now how many uh how many films are uh are shot by Peter Andrews? I mean does most of it?
0: most of Steven Soderbergh's films. Does
1: he have an IMDb entry?
0: <laughs> he does. Yeah, um, he's one of a few people to have fictional so uh, IMDb entries. Uh, there's of course Alan Smithy, which is the the name yes. that the Directors Guild allows you to use if you uh, <laughs> if you want to disown <laughs> the film out. that you've worked on. Uh, and then also uh, Donald Kaufman, the fictional brother of Charlie Kaufman from, oh, I love that. from Adaptation, has, a, has an IMDb page and,
1: and, and a real an credit. Academy and, Award, And right? an Academy Award for writing uh, Adaptation. Right. It's actually, but it looks like it was just a nomination along with oh, his, just nomination. his brother, Charlie. That's so funny. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the film stars George Clooney, Natasha McElhone, Viola Davis, Jeremy Davies, and Ulrich Tukur. So in the 1990s, James Cameron uh, wants to develop a remake of this film, and he goes through a five-year negotiation with Moss Film, which was a company that produced the Tarkovsky film, and eventually gets the rights. He then finds out that Steven Soderbergh has gone to Fox and uh, asked for the rights to the book as well, because he would like to direct them, He'd read the book and was very interested in, uh, in in being the one that would get to you know readapt it for the screen and and specifically not necessarily remake the film but but readapt the book. So Soderbergh meets with Cameron uh, and basically they, they they realize that they're sort of all interested in the same things. They all want to uh, you know address the sort of psychological study instead of making it an action adventure film. So they realize they're a good match, and Cameron basically just gives him the film uh and and decides to stay on as a producer, but let let Soderbergh write and direct it.
4: God bless.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. One of the like most generous things that the Cameron has has ever really done, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. Um Soderberg said I hadn't ever come near sci-fi before, but mostly because the hardware aspects of the genre don't really interest me. I'm not interested in making a film about what technology is going to be like a few decades from now, uh, which I think you feel when watching this. Like it certainly yeah. has like incredible production design, but it's certainly not interested in how does a spaceship work. Uh, Soderbergh said, my whole pitch to James Cameron's company because they own the rights and it was something I was interested in for a while. I said, if we do our jobs right, it's a combination of 2001 2001 and Last Tango in Paris, and they said, oh, that sounds good. Hmm. And then, to make things weirder, uh, when I was listening to the commentary earlier, uh, Soderbergh said that, uh, you know, we we mentioned earlier that Stanislaw Lem doesn't like either of these adaptations of his film, and then Soderbergh said, yeah, but you know, I hear from people that he hasn't seen a film in over 30 years anyway, including (laughs) this film, and the last two films he saw were 2001 and Last Tango in Paris wow no way yeah, yeah. god how strange very huh. weird yeah that's so a really he, he might know. have liked this but he, <laughs> he apparently he apparently read the reviews and was like sounds like shit no thank you
1: <laughs> <laughs> really peculiar uh reference to make um i mean less tango in paris is a movie with you know in, in which a very horrific uh abuse occurred like literally mm-hmm. on on set on screen it's in the film mm-hmm. um that that film has a very like depraved, uh, kind of upsetting relationship that it explores. I can I guess I can kind of understand. Actually, I don't know. I don't know why it's compared to that. I can see two thousand one in here for sure.
4: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I
1: I also I appreciate that Soderbergh sees this as an opportunity to kind of like get into the 2001 of this film that like there's an opportunity here to like work with you know the limits of time and space and like how like Mm -hmm. time kind of like dissolves in the end of this film and in a similar way that I think Kubrick does with that movie
0: yeah absolutely yeah Soderbergh had one condition before agreeing to direct the film he said I told them I had an idea of how to do this but I wanted to write the screenplay on spec I didn't want to make a deal to do it I explained my approach and what I wanted to focus on and the ways in which I thought it would be different from the book and different from Tarkovsky's movie. Um, I think essentially because if you make a deal to write a script, then there are pitch meetings and check-ins and mm-hmm. you know every draft gets you know read and you get notes on all of them. So I think he wants to just show up with a finished script and be like, here's the movie, deal with it. Good for him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they can decide whether or not they want to you know, actually make the, uh, you know, make the thing that he's, he's pitching.
4: Mm.
0: Yeah. Cameron said, this was Steven's game from the get-go. He went off and wrote the script essentially in a vacuum. We didn't tell him what we thought it should be. We didn't sit down and talk about whether it should be an effects film or not. We just waited to see what he came back with and his initial script blew us away. And Soderbergh said, it wasn't until I actually got into the writing that I realized why I was so interested in it. It turned out to be an opportunity to address some subjects that I wanted to write about, but a didn't know that I wanted to write about them, and B didn't know how to write about them. This is a perfect vehicle for all of them, so it's been pretty interesting.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Hmm. That sure feels like a, a good picture of the writing process in general. But I love that so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Just get attached to an idea, start writing it, and then oh, that's why. That's why I wanted to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, Soderbergh apparently uh, frequently asked Cameron for for input on the script, saying. Jim knows narrative backwards and forwards. He really understands how to set up and pay off a story. I'd meet with him about Solaris and we'd have three hour conversations about the story, about technology, about what the future is going to be like and about space travel and issues like isolation and sensory deprivation because he studied all of it. I would tape our conversations and transcribe them and highlight things that I could find that could find their way into the film, whether it was a sentence or an idea, anything I thought might stick."
1: yeah i mean cameron is
0: literally like going into the depths of the ocean yeah, alone he's just like so. an expert on all of this stuff and yeah i mean what a perfect producer to have yeah. <laughs> i just can't think of more of a dream scenario than james cameron wants to produce my space movie
1: yeah your mysterious benefactor who is like yeah <laughs> has unlimited money and uh the most encouraging person you know to work with
0: yeah the uh shooting script for the film was only 75 pages long, which uh, wow. Wow. Is, is short for a script most most scripts are 90 pages the idea being that there's about one one page per minute as far as the translation to screen uh, but he he basically said you know the pacing and the tone of the film would naturally expand this to feature length and uh, and and the script did not need to be any longer than it was uh although Cameron says on the commentary that despite that being true, the script was extremely hyper-specific in terms of, you know, <laughs> actual shots that were going to make it into the film and even where mm-hmm. the edit points were and things like that. Oh, so wow. Yeah, so it's really interesting the way that uh, he knew in- instinctively, you know, I'm writing this one line of scene direction. It's going to play as, like, four minutes of screen time, you know. Mm. It's really Yeah, cool. I mean, it's, it almost
1: feels like a silly thing for Soderbergh to have to do, that, like, he's going to write, shoot, you know direct and edit this so like if he knows what he needs to get out of these pages like he should be able to make the script as long or as short as he as he wants right (laughs) it's not like he's gonna hand it off to someone else I mean of course there's this massive production that has to rely on these words on this page but uh it's funny for him the idea to me that he has to kind of like prove it even though he's gonna do it all himself
0: yeah uh so you know, we've been talking about how we, we love Clooney in this. Clooney was not Soderbergh's first choice for the film. Uh, his first choice was actually Daniel Day Lewis. Oh my God. I saw that. (laughs) Um, unfortunately, uh, the scheduling for gangs of New York made it impossible for him to work on the film. Uh, and then Clooney actually lobbies Soderbergh, uh, for a role in the movie. Um, Hmm. you know, he, he wrote him a letter and apparently, uh, Clooney is known for writing people letters but apparently uh, mostly when he is angry with them (laughs) so so Clooney Clooney says I sent Stephen a letter and said I don't know if I can do it but I'd like to take a crack at it this is really an actor's piece and it's the most difficult and scariest thing I've ever done by so far as an actor if you're going to go way out on a limb you're going to want to do that with Stephen he's good at being very specific which is what good directors do there's always a point of view Uh, and so obviously you know Soderbergh likes the letter and and decides to to work with Clooney on this.
4: I love that so much. Yeah. Oh man, especially because it's just such a good fucking. <laughs> it's it's such an incredible performance by Clooney. Like yeah, I, I really can't is. think of a better one by him, honestly.
0: I can't either. Um, I really can't. And and even just like thinking about you know he's he's great in in those Coen's films, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like you know, may I think maybe the two these two need to get back together. You know, I, know. I, I think maybe uh, think maybe Soderbergh is the best at directing Clooney. <laughs> Certainly
1: how I feel after watching this one. Did you catch that that interview with uh, Soderbergh and Clooney on Charlie Rose? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't see that one. It's from 2002. And it, yeah, it's the two of them talking about Solaris. And uh, I don't know if we have this in our research here that uh it's so funny. That, I mean, they explain the whole uh, journey of this film, what you just described Adam with the, the letter and everything. But Soderberg saying that like he's thinking of getting out of making movies and like this might be his last film.
0: He's hmm. been saying and that for I know you know
1: 20 years. This is this is literally <laughs> 21 years ago yeah. <laughs> and he's still saying this it's like, him and dude, Hayao
4: Miyazaki both yeah, yeah.
1: either yeah. retire or don't stop yeah. telling us you're going to stop making movies
0: I mean he did retire and stop making films for like six years he just worked in TV true. you know that yeah. did actually happen <laughs>
1: but he's back now
0: he's back he's very I mean, but What's back his,
1: what's his thing now he, he shoots all of his movies like on that little cart that drives he around did that,
0: he did that on this too Oh, he did? Yeah. He, 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 um, well, we'll get to it with the, we talk about production design and lighting, but yeah, for the most part, he rides around, uh, on a, on like a dolly cart with the, with the camera like affixed to the dolly cart and he sits on it and he just points the camera wherever he wants to point it. (laughs) Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Uh, He cast uh, Natasha McElhone uh, as Rare because uh, he had enjoyed her in the uh, Merchant Ivory film Surviving Picasso. And he Mm. said, she reminded me of the great European actresses of the 60s and 70s, like Jean Moreau and Dominique Sander. Mm -hmm. They were great, sexy, complicated women, not girls, women. Mm. Uh, And he cast Viola Davis because he had already worked with her and, and loved her. Uh, So Jeremy Davies is cast off of a uh, self-tape, but not a self-tape he made for this film. He had auditioned to play Charles Manson. Oh my God. Yeah. And and he had taken transcripts of Manson's uh, speeches, performed them with added improvisations. So Soderbergh loves that Davies could A, play Manson and B, improvise while in character as Manson because he's like, I need someone that can improvise what it is like to uh, be a non-human trying to behave as a human being would, and sort of sees all of what he needs there in this weird, like Charles Manson self tape. Um, <laughs> also, he does weirdly look a lot like Charles Manson, and could yeah, he does absolutely do that—the Manson vibe. Um, and that that project does not does not end up happening. Uh, Ulrich Takur, who plays Jabarian, he's also cast from a tape, uh, and you can see some of his tape. Uh, in the special features on the on the disc and the reason why Soderbergh casts it from the tape is not that he thinks oh wow what a great self-tape it's because his tape is a close-up of his pet dog and it's just him performing the monologues to his dog and his dog reacting and Soderbergh (laughs) Soderbergh is like holy shit I gotta meet this guy
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. It's like the, the famous Kuleshov effect video, but yeah. he's performing. It's exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Amazing way to uh, to get cast in a film. So production officially begins uh, on May 5th, 2002. Uh, and Parth, our, our research, researcher, he says, uh, I have tried to fact check this because it is really hard to believe that the movie came out only six months after production began, but it seems yeah. like this is true. Yeah. And I completely see that being the case because uh, Soderbergh did the first cut for this film in just eight days, oh my God. Uh, which is which is you know honestly like you know part of you know he 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 loves shooting on uh, on the iPhone and the iPad these days, and part of why he loves doing that is because at the end of every shoot day he goes home and he. Edits the you know the film in iMovie on the iPad that he's just shot the film on and he oh my God. he just he, he 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 does post while he's in production now so I have no issue believing that even twenty years ago he was he was Jesus. turning films around in just six months.
4: I'm not a filmmaker, but that just stresses me out thinking yeah. about the logistics yeah, absolutely of all of fuck
0: that. Fuck that! I do not want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> he's editing his movies in iMovie now. I think just the just the ones he was doing it's on like, the like 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 high flying bird. I know he, he shot on an iPad and, and edited wow. on the iPad as well. Yeah,
1: that's wild. Yeah, what a mania. I mean,
0: at least the first round of edit. I'm sure at some point it goes onto a a desktop computer and someone yeah. does a proper color grade and you know yeah, sound yeah. mix. But but he's at first he's he's cutting on on the iPad. God. Uh, so they start shooting uh, in LA uh, and they they film uh, exteriors there for a week. Then they move into uh, studio spaces uh, and they, they shoot on the Warner Brothers lot, which is also where they had shot uh, Ocean's Eleven. Hmm. So Cameron stays on as producer, but this is really just in pre-production and post-production. He did not visit the set uh, even once. He said, hmm. well, we didn't really interact that much because I never really went to the set. That's to me like a good thing. Thinking as a director, as a director, what would my ideal producer be? A producer that never went to set. So I only want to work with directors that are grown-ups that can go and make a movie by themselves and don't really need me
1: there on a moment-by-moment basis. Right. Because I am currently at the bottom of the ocean. Right. (laughs) I don't have time for this.
4: Either the best boss ever or the worst boss ever. I can't really decide which. Yes.
1: (laughs) I am exploring regions never before seen by human eyes. Yes, <laughs> in my one-man submarine <laughs> that I designed <laughs> and engineered myself. I invented. <laughs> Bizarre yes, our human being. Um,
0: he also, you know, we've just been talking about Soderbergh's Speed, and and Cameron. Uh, points out as well he says uh, Soderbergh works at a breakneck speed he just goes in there guns blazing it's not that it's ill-considered he really sits and works with it in the scripting stage but it's a furious process and he shoots really quickly but you can see that it's a beautifully lit film it's absolutely gorgeous but he's like Jackson Pollock he just wants to get the stuff on a canvas and see what happens
1: Hmm. I love that I love hearing these anecdotes about directors who are not like uh you know, this Fincher archetype or his Kubrick of like shooting 300 takes until the actors want to like tear their eyes out. Mm-hmm. Like get in and get out, get what you need and move on. I mm-hmm. I, I, I admire that.
0: Yes. Uh, and I'll tell you now how he was able to do that. So they build this space station set. It is humongous. It's 150 feet by 200 feet. Mm-hmm. And Soderbergh works with uh, production designer uh, Philip Messina on this. They take this very sort of realistic approach to the design of the ship uh, and they looked at the International Space Station for inspiration. So the way that Soderbergh is really able to uh, unlock this sort of th- you know thing we've been joking about, being able to ride around on this little cart, pointing the camera wherever he wants, is that they uh, light the station uh, completely practically. Uh, all of the lights are built into the production design of the set. Which you could totally like feel when you are watching the movie because all that light feels so motivated by the yeah. rooms that these these characters are in, uh, and it means that he can truly shoot three hundred and sixty degrees anywhere he wants to point that camera. Uh, you know the, the 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 scene is going to be lit. You know uh, effectively, and there's not going to be any production equipment in the
1: shots. Mm. Yeah. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, that's like... the dream. <laughs> that's, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I haven't directed a film in a long time, but uh, that that is like, I feel like all of the fears of making a movie start to go away when somebody tells you like, Look, you can just go in there. Everything is lit up. You can shoot in any direction. Yeah. Uh anything you want and like just like go in there and have fun. <laughs> like, yeah. W- w- why would you not uh <laughs> why would you not do that if you had that chance?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean this this is like my dream. Like if you gave me like 50 million dollars, this is yeah. this is the exact thing I would do. Is I would build a spaceship and I would fill it with mm-hmm. like cool practical lights. <laughs> like that's yeah. what I would do. Uh and I would shoot To make a movie
1: or, or oh, okay. No, no, I'm saying like I would I would, <laughs> just shoot, to live I, there? I would make a I would make a space film and no, I would, and I would and I would yeah. set up
0: the production exactly the same way.
1: Um, I mean, I might just not I mean that's the other thing. Like you don't have to make a movie if someone gives you all that money. You could just make that spaceship with the practical lights and just kind of live in there. that's true. That's a good point. That's a very good point.
0: And so yeah, so 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 Soderberg benefits from that, but so do the actors. Um, all of the actors sort of say that uh, you know the the set became really collaborative uh, because of this, because they could just sort of you know when they could they could block scenes together in a in a way that felt very collaborative, and they could make suggestions, and those suggestions could be heard and potentially implemented because they didn't have to relight any time uh, they needed to to change things up. Um, and uh, Natasha McElhone said it felt more like rehearsing a play than shooting a film.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah. which is very cool. Again, I feel like that's what you want, right? You can just focus on on the the storytelling and not have to worry about all that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, Jim Planet, the the gaffer, said when I went to production designer uh, Phil Messina's office, he showed me these really modern looking fixtures as examples of what he was thinking of uh, for lighting the space station set with. I said, you know, it might work better if we just cut holes on the side of the space station and I put lights behind them, which he agreed to do. As he said, a lot of lights, four hundred nooks, and Phil had some fluorescence too. But since there were no movie lights inside, Stephen, who operated the camera himself and the actors, could move through the space station without any difficulty whatsoever. The goal was to give the director full flexibility Mm. Planet also added That um, when they were pre-lighting Steven said, I want to shoot Solaris At a 2.8 aperture because you once told me Gordon Willis did that I replied, that was spherical, this is anamorphic I think we need a little more stopper than that But he insisted, because Gordon Willis was his hero So we shot at (laughs) (laughs) 2.8 And sometimes the assistant cameraman Would ask, which eye do you want in focus? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which I love. And it's so funny because like, you know, watching the film, like h- the, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, God, this is just like gorgeous, high contrast cinematography. Like I feel like I'm watching like Gordon Willis. And then I I, I read this note from Perth, and I'm just like, <laughs> yes, I feel so smart right now. <laughs> <laughs> Your Willis radar was... Uh, yeah, you're, fully um, activated. Tingling, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this is where I'll make my plea to um, any sort of like, you know, home video distributor that uh, this film needs a full 4K HDR remaster. Yes, it really um, does. It, it really, it's so gorgeously lit that it, it just feels like a crime that the most accessible home video for this is a DVD made in the early 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. And it still a looks bummer, great, but like, you know, it, I know it could look better. And you might come back and say, oh, well, you know, we, we'd have to redo, you know, the, the effects wouldn't look good. To which I say, incorrect. Uh, and I will quote uh, Tom Smith, the film's VFX supervisor. When you have a spaceship like ours that has that amount of detail in it, we had to go to the next step, which is up to 4K resolution. So it really is a lot more data, a lot more pixels in terms of resolution. It's, uh, it's more resolution that can actually be in the film itself. By the time you composite those in, you really get the bang for your buck in terms of quality. So these effects were actually done in 4K. The spaceship and uh, uh, floating through space is, 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 a, is a model, a, a, a rendering that would still function today under today's scrutiny. So uh, please someone remaster this uh, for, for modern distribution
4: this is me going on the record as saying that I would do crimes for this for <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: Master. <laughs> yes. This needs yeah. to have a, a, an HDR, an HDR color grade.
1: Yeah. And man, it, it looks so good. The, uh, yeah. we were talking about two weeks ago in 2010, the year we make contact, which is the sequel to 2001, uh, kind of seeing, have, have you seen that movie, Sarah?
4: I have. Yeah. Just the once, but I've seen it. Yeah.
1: We, uh, I thought that you can kind of see the seams in a lot of the, uh, the, I guess, visual effects that are happening. And it's such a bummer because in 2001 that the effects, the practical effects in that are like flawless. Yeah. Um, then we get to Tarkovsky's Solaris, which kind of has a different idea of like science fiction, like flashy effects and works to its advantage because it really holds up. It's so minimal and artful right. the way they carried it out. Mm-hmm. And now in 2002 with this film, I feel like the, uh, Everything all the effects work, practical and visual, everything that's happening here, uh, it holds up. I mean, yeah. When I look at this spaceship, I feel like I'm 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 not looking at, like, a shitty 2001 CGI spaceship. I'm looking at, like, yeah, that's. I think that's what it would look like, right? It looks like a ship in space. (laughs) Holds up.
4: Yeah, I think when I saw the space station again, I thought, oh, that feels like a Kubrick homage. And then my mind just kind of slid right past it. And that feels like a triumph of special effects because I would have noticed if it looked terrible. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is 21 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What's
0: up? Soderberg uh he said on the commentary that they uh, that they had considered trying to do the the exterior of the space station as a as a fully built model um oh, wow. but because they wanted to have these sort of like solar sail designs uh, that it has uh it just could not be built practically and 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 shot practically they they had to uh they had to do it in 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 CG
3: uh hmm. ah.
0: Uh, so we, we we brought up the uh the the shots of Clooney on the L earlier um but yes they built a full train car uh that train car was then like mounted on the like a trailer bed of a truck and that was driven around the set uh with with rain machines blasting on it and people walking outside uh the the windows then with blue screen behind that that they could put uh plates of Chicago into
4: Makes me so happy that yeah. they threw some Chicago in there yeah. too. <laughs> uh, and it looks so, uh,
0: it looks so funny in the behind the scenes because it's just like a train car on the back of a truck. <laughs> 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 it's super goofy. And actually, uh, f- for those shots on the train where um, uh, Natasha Macalone has the. Uh, has the doorknob in her hand apparently the the origin of this prop is that Soderbergh you know they're blocking the scene and he's like you should really be holding something why don't you just go to the uh the prop truck over there and and just pick something and bring it back and so she came back with the doorknob and Soderbergh was like yep perfect makes you know makes excellent sense let's go with that
2: I
4: love that there's no further explanation for (laughs) it. yeah I was
1: wondering what that (laughs) what's going on there so funny
0: yeah Soderbergh said of production there was no simple shot every shot in it had some element that kept it from being easy whether it was a technical element or a performance thing every day I thought I'd get to something that would go quickly or easily I was always foiled I was purposely trying to keep myself open to exploring it on the spot and not trying to nail stuff down because I didn't want to come in and tell the actors okay you're there and you're there and you say this and you cross over there so I was trying to do my homework in terms of writing out or writing down how all these things should fit together but you never know until you put it together.
4: This makes me respect him so much more. And I already respected yeah. him a lot, but yeah. just hearing about the way that he approached this, I just he's so good.
0: Yeah. Um and we've already talked about sort of the uh the the way in which the film manages to not objectify um the uh you know, Natasha McElhone and the uh the sex scenes between her and Clooney. Uh, Mm -hmm. and those were shot, you know, on a totally closed set where it was just the two of them and Soderbergh. And because he's his own DP, he is, uh, you know, he doesn't, he literally just doesn't need any other crew there. Uh, so it is, uh, I think part of why those scenes work is because that, that intimacy is, is clearly just like so
1: built into the, uh, the, the production of the scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's gotta be a lot of trust happening in there. Right. Especially because him and Clooney are like already like producing partners and, and friends and, uh, a closed set, it's, I, you have to imagine that reflects in the performance and the end result, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, two naked people with like hundreds of people watching them and all these lights and, you know, people shouting yeah. and everything. And again, there are no,
0: there's no like lights in the scene. You That's know? crazy. It's, uh, by doing it all practically in the production design, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't even, it's not even going to feel like a film set to them other than Soderbergh with the camera. Hmm. Uh, so we've already said he he edited uh, the film himself, uh, and so he he enters post-production. Uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, it takes him only uh, eight days after production is wrapped to have a first cut of the film. Cameron said that the studio had concerns over the film as they were not used to Soderbergh's method of working, um, i.e. not expecting to get a cut in eight days. <laughs> <laughs> so he, yeah. Cameron said, "Steven's process is the second he had it done, he wanted to cut it and show it to everybody and get some feedback. That's the way he's used to working. And the studio is not used to seeing anything until it's really refined. And we're talking, we saw a cut eight days after it was finished. And that was just phenomenal. I wouldn't show anything I've done for at least three months. So the studio was at a point where they could have had miles and miles of notes and criticisms, but they didn't. They held back and that's hard for them to do. This is a considerable amount of money for them. It's not $100 million, but it's still, they want it to be as good as it can be. And now they feel that it actually is.
1: (laughs) Cameron is like, I I wouldn't show anyone anything for like 12 years. Yeah. (laughs) How how long? I I will remain in my bunker in New Zealand
0: until someone drags me out. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Cameron was also impressed that Soderbergh cut out most of the scenes in which the characters directly address either the science of the film or the philosophy of it. Uh, There was apparently a lot more of it. Uh, You know, the the runtime of it right now with credits is uh, an hour and 38 minutes uh, so there was, you know, several cuts that were longer than that, but there was also at one point an 85 minute cut. Um wow. Yeah. Uh uh, you know, Cameron said that Soderberg was absolutely mercenary with his own material and he would uh, he would try and trim it down to its its barest sort of necessities and Cameron actually had to convince him to put more scenes back in. Um mm. which you never really hear any producer say. But, I know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a question of what you want from a movie because the Tarkovsky one is full of a ton of discussion and discourse about the philosophy of, you know, this station and this yeah. this this thing, and this film is very very light on it. Um, personally, I I kind of like this version a little better, to be honest. Me too. Um, but yeah. it's interesting that like you will hear solaris uttered in the same breath as 2001 but you won't hear almost anyone talk about this solaris film right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that sequence of the
0: the athena craft docking with the um with the prometheus was uh initially twice as long uh, and it's already a pretty long scene and <laughs> it was set to the complete you know start to finish uh of the velvet undergrounds venus in furs um, because Soderbergh had initially wanted to use music that would announce uh, that this wouldn't be your father's sci-fi film, uh, oh. but but Cameron convinced Soderbergh to to go with score and let that reveal happen uh, as it happened, uh, and then of course one scene later we get insane clown posse. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's diagenic though, and it feels it right
0: is. for it's that diagetic, character. Yeah, it's true. It feels like a character beat. Minnie Manson
1: listening to ICP.
4: such a great touch though it is perfect
1: you just hear it like echoing from far away at first like you hear that like (laughs)
3: like
1: Like you hear the scream yeah you
0: hear the scream (laughs) in the music and you think oh wow we're on a haunted spaceship and then you're like oh no it's just icp but also we are on a haunted spaceship (laughs) Yeah. yeah um for the design of the uh of, of Solaris itself you know they in in the in the Tarkovsky film it's this sort of you know it's this ocean and we really only see the, see the ocean itself um but here they decided to visualize the surface of the planet uh more like uh firing synapses um mm. to sort of speak to the the sentience of the entity and build that into the design Uh, And they also created six different versions of Solaris. So it starts Hmm. off looking more tame and it has this this purple hue to it. And as the film goes on, it gets more and more chaotic and and more orange and more red and uh, perhaps more angry looking.
4: Kind of in parallel with the color choices and the flashbacks, too. I don't think Mm -hmm. you get very much red until Rhea shows up on the scene. Yeah. And then she's wearing red and then um, slowly like the color red just sort of starts to envelope both of them until it's it, it almost feels as though they're enclosed in ki- inside like kind of a womb mm-hmm. almost. Yeah. Um, but then there's also yeah. a lot of rage in there, too. It's both a very nurturing color in this movie and it's also a very angry color in this movie.
0: Yeah. It's such a especially because it's it's first introduced in the flashbacks and the flashbacks start off feeling so warm. And then by the mm-hmm. end of it, you're like, this is not warm.
4: <laughs> yeah, get me out of here. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: That's what I was going to say. The entity of Solaris kind of at times feels kind of menacing. And there is, you, you could walk out of this movie thinking like it is expanding. Is it intent on sort of absorbing like our you know solar system is it is it coming for earth uh mm-hmm. which i mean i love that idea if that if mm-hmm. i mean that's what that's what civilizations or, or you know creatures do they they go out and you know proliferate right. so uh but which, it's which it's cameron, very subtle,
0: cameron yeah. talks about that on the commentary that notion of uh, oh he does of of uh you know the the most intelligent you know, species in the room is eventually going to subjugate the, the other ones. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, and the way that that is sort of like personified in the film is in, in Gordon, who is like, we got to destroy this thing. It's definitely smarter than us. We need to be smarter mm-hmm. than it. Otherwise we're fucked, you know?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and, and he was
1: saying that if he was on the spaceship, he would have her point of view. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a reading of this film that ends with like this species, this thing has made this man like it's prisoner, right? It, mm-hmm. he is he is stuck inside this this field right it's driven him mad to the point where
0: he's like i would like to be here now instead and you know yeah just, you know, and it is an entity that expands
1: and it absorbs so maybe it's not so nice yeah.
4: i might be misremembering the book but i think there is a, a more science thread that involves uh the planet kind of growing islands out of the ocean and they can't really tell where the islands are coming from and there's like additional mass that's growing and they're trying to figure out how to harness that essentially for human purposes Mm -hmm. and it kind of gets into that idea of of subjugation and the planet being more intelligent than the people studying it too Mm. Hmm. but in a much more like hard sci-fi way
1: got
0: it right and then yeah in this adaptation Gordon talks about how the reason she's here is to try and study it as a potential fuel source. Right. Or or something else they can exploit for, you know, capitalist means. Uh and then in the Tarkovsky film we we do see islands forming uh, mm-hmm. in in that ocean. Mm-hmm. Um Cliff Martinez who, you know, we've already praised uh, his his amazing score for this. Uh, he said, Solaris is one of my early attempts at doing an orchestral score. It was kind of my first big challenge doing a big studio picture and my first encounter with a really large, it was a 90-piece orchestra. Mm. Um, and wow. he says it's his favorite score. He's he's composed. He said, I wish I could roll out of bed every day and write another Solaris.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Wait a second. Cliff Martinez was... A drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers for a bit, apparently. Really? really? Did we know this? Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. And also, also Captain Beefheart. Wow, rules. Um, But yeah, I was looking at right. He does, he does like the soundtrack of Drive, but not, of course, like those you know iconic songs that were right. that are in that and uh, and Only God Forgives and Neon Demon. All mm-hmm. these Nicholas Winding Refn films. He's done a bunch of Soderbergh movies. What I feel like he's also done... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, he's he's on a lot of Chili Peppers albums. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, I didn't realize. Yeah. I didn't know that at all. That's so funny. <laughs> Weird. Interesting, yeah.
0: So as we uh, make our way to the film's release, things kind of start to to take a turn for the film. Uh, the first thing that happens is the MPAA uh, tries to give it an R rating. Um, Clooney said of this, I think it was orchestrated, if you ask me, there's a huge dilemma with how to sell this film and the marketing on it so far has been pretty dismal. From what I've seen, the trailers and commercials have nothing to do with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and Soderbergh says, uh, it was unexpected because I intentionally backed off from some of the more overt sexual stuff in order to make the film more romantic. It certainly didn't feel like an hour after that, particularly when you compare it to what else is rated PG-13. I thought we should be able to get in there too. Hmm. And much of the film's publicity surrounds Clooney's ass. Um, <laughs> Clooney felt that this was due to the studio not knowing how to market the film, saying... Oh, my God. Yeah, the movie probably won't open great at the box office. It will probably do modest business at best. It won't appeal to the masses because it asks questions of the audience that movies don't ordinarily ask. It's a tough movie to sell. They're spinning their wheels on this one. I think they're happy for anything that can get them some ink. And I suspect that is why you've heard so much about my butt.
4: (laughs) God, that sucks so bad. They put so much thought and time and effort into this movie and... Ah, uh, and, and the studio doesn't even know how to like approach it. That just I find that personally upsetting. I already knew this and I'm still upset by it.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's a huge bummer. Um mm-hmm. when asked what it was like to see Clooney's butt, uh McElhin responded, You should have seen his front. <laughs> wow. <laughs> amazing nice response. yeah she also said uh, I don't think Steven made a decision that he was going to show George's behind it wasn't like let's try and sell this movie on George's backside <laughs> beautiful as it is
1: I love this
0: yeah and Soderbergh said I guess we'll have to see how much awareness it raises but I understand how it happened it's hard to talk about the cosmos without going back to George's butt at some point <laughs> I told you, Dom. I told you we were gonna talk about his ass.
1: <laughs> it has a very um thin like fur. Did you notice? I, have a, I can't say I just, did. We upgraded our TV in here so it's a bit bigger. And I can see just a very light like fur around his cheeks. And <laughs> I appreciate that. Time for no, that, that 4K re-release, man. <laughs> yes. Give us the 4K butt.
0: <laughs> um Solaris was released domestically on November 27th, 2002. On an estimated budget of $47 million, the film brought in $14.9 million domestically and $30 million worldwide, uh, making it a box office flop uh, and blame placed squarely on the marketing. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. What a bummer. Yeah. Uh, it also, it got like a relatively mixed critical response as well. You know, it leaned positive, but most people compared it unfavorably to the Tarkovsky film. Um, hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, um, and as we've already discussed, Stanislaw Lem uh, not a fan, despite not having seen it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that always the case?
0: Yeah. Did you even
1: watch it? (laughs) Yeah,
0: he said some reviewers, like one from the New York Times, claimed the film was a love story, a romance set in outer space. I have not seen the film and I'm not familiar with the script. Hence, I cannot say anything about the movie itself except for what the reviews reflect, albeit unclearly, like a distorted picture of one's face in Ripley water. However, to the best of my knowledge, the book was not dedicated to the erotic problems of people in outer space. (laughs) And
1: neither is this movie. No, not really. The erotic problems. Fascinating. Wow. When is it going to get its due? When when is it when is it going to, they're going to be the big like, you know, Solaris Renaissance? I thought we kick off the
4: Solarisance like yeah. right here right Yeah.
0: Yeah. do We do we should it? see if we can host a screening somewhere.
1: That oh, would be great. I'd love great. that. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: It just needs a few, you know, a few essays on a few of these big film sites I feel like we get it going.
4: Yeah. I think there were a few essays la- late last year because it was the 20th anniversary, but oh, I feel like sense. they kind of just slid on by. So maybe for the 25th anniversary if something hasn't happened then, we should probably get enough um I don't know. Uh we should get the ball rolling enough yes. that it will mm-hmm. be able to work on its own power by then. So yes. when
1: did I I feel horrible that I I didn't I wasn't even aware that you wrote an essay about this. Sir. No, I, me too. I, I <laughs> oh, see no, here. Now. In 2018 it's,
4: it's a, it came out. Uh I think I think so. That sounds about right. Um, It's an earlier one of mine. So it's not one that I like talk about all that often, but Mm. it involved writing about color and it was a little bit more disciplined than something else that anything else. I think by that point that I had written. So Mm. Um, and it also made me appreciate the Soderbergh Solaris just that much more. So I have a very soft spot in my heart for it.
1: Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah. Mm. Um, And we can share it with our audience for sure.
3: Earth, even the word sounded strange to me now. Unfamiliar. How long had I been gone? How long had I been back? Did it matter? I tried to find the rhythm of the world where I used to live followed the current. I was silent, attentive. I made a conscious effort to smile, nod, stand, and perform the millions of gestures that constitute life on Earth. I studied these gestures until they became reflexes again. was haunted by the idea that I remembered her wrong. And somehow I was wrong about everything.
1: It's time to, uh, to get to our scenes. As always, Sarah, you have guest rights. If you'd like to share yours first, please go right ahead.
4: Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. Um, honestly, this one... I think is probably the most challenging eye of the duck I've, I've tried to figure out just because mm. there's so many different layers and one. things like it's a, it's a tough one. And it, I'm not going to say it doesn't help because I, I think that it's a strength of the movie that the scenes just sort of slide into each other. I mm-hmm. think that has a lot to do with the nature of human memory and the way that we perceive things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my eye of the duck scene is almost more just a line reading than a scene itself. And it comes after um, the visitor version of Rhea has figured out who she is and what she is and the fact that she is not herself, in effect, and that she has been driven to complete and utter despair by this revelation. And I think the the line itself, um, I guess I'll just come out and say it really, is is. The moment when Kelvin looks at her and says, like, I don't know how to get past this anymore. All I see is you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the line that the movie kind of turns on, because for so much of this film, even before we actively know that he's grieving, um so much of what he is and does is wrapped up in the idea of helping other people get through their grief or get past some psychological issue mm-hmm. it's kind of the turning point for him to even go to Solaris in the first place is that he's supposed to be good at this sort of thing and yet he isn't good at recognizing it in himself and he's not good at dealing with it for himself and then once the planet effectively calls his bluff and sends a visitor that is the literal like personification of his grief and his past mistakes and a failed relationship. Um, He's unable to let go of that. Like he rejects it outright at first and and pushes his wife out the airlock essentially. But once she comes back and he realizes that he can't just get rid of his grief, he can't offload his grief quite that easily. Mm -hmm. He's going to grab onto that and he's not going to be able to let go. And, Up until this point, we've spent a decent amount of time in Rhea's head, specifically in Visitor Rhea's head, remembering things about herself that aren't her own memories. They're Calvin's memories. And so she's remembering how he remembered her being. So it's an incomplete picture of an incomplete vision of another person. (laughs) And he knows all of this and he knows that this causes her just immense grief and he's still unable to let go. And the way that he delivers the line of all I see is you is it's heartbreaking because all he sees is a very imperfect version of her. And it's also an incredibly romantic line because mm-hmm. he's hes essentially declaring his love for her all over again and saying that he's not willing to give up this time. Um, I find that deeply heartbreaking and also incredibly romantic and i don't know how this movie works without that line so that's my eye of the duck scene
3: the day i left and you said that you wouldn't make it i didn't hear you because i was angry this is my chance to undo that mistake and i need you to help me but am i really rare I don't know anymore. All I see is you.
0: That's a great oh, pick. Man. Yeah. Um, that moment is uh is so sad. Uh mm-hmm. just, just devastating. Um I think is that the same scene where where she, she she basically says to him, like, I'm I'm going to kill myself because you remember me as someone that's killed themselves. Like Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. you remembered
4: I mean, me wrong, essentially. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is, a, yeah, just a, an amazing and, and, and horrifying notion.
1: Um, yeah. There are so many moments in this movie that I think qualify here and uh, yeah. So picking like a, a, just one, one line reading, I feel like is a really good uh, place to go because I feel like there are like exchanges of shots in this, like, like, I, just I'm like you're going
0: to say, I have like, like, like my thing is is also just a minute thing like yeah. that. Yeah, do you want to well. do
1: you want to go for it?
0: Uh yeah, yeah. Uh and I I have a very sort of similar like like read to you Sarah, but kind of um just an expansion of a different piece of minutia, but um you know, I I I kept trying to think about like how, you know, the 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 film is is sort of like circling all these different notions, you know, it's it's talking about grief, love, dreams and and memory so when i was looking for a scene i was looking for for something that could help me sort of synthesize all of these things into into one sort of like unified uh elements and i found that in a scene uh around 40 minutes into the film and it's actually more of a sequence that lasts about five minutes and this is after uh visitor rare has 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 returned the 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 set it's either you know the same one who's arrived a, a second time or it is a second visitor who is also rare we don't really know and uh we we cut between her uh in the in the spaceship in the in the present and then her uh digging through kelvin's memories in the past um mm-hmm. and, and and having similar sort of thoughts about like you know why am i here how did i get here and 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 what actually what actually am i and during this sequence there is a moment where chris and Rhea are at a dinner with dr jabarian and some other friends of theirs and they're having this you know wild conversation about like the nature of like you know god and the universe and 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 the afterlife and all of these things and uh on the one hand I feel like those conversations encapsulate so much of what the film is also interested in in talking about but the the thing that I really uh clicked into in in this scene is that we are mostly seeing uh Chris and Rhea in these sort of very like objective uh over the shoulder shots um like over one person's shoulder onto the other person Mm. but then there's this cut to uh Rhea's point of view of Chris and he is staring uh directly into the camera audio cuts out we can't hear him and like for this brief moment we live uh in Rhea's world Mm -hmm. um and it's just empty and silent except for you know the face of her husband Mm -hmm. and then for an even briefer beat we see the reverse of this we see Chris's point of view on on Rhea and she has this very very slight smile on her face and we think for a moment, you know, for less than a moment, even that perhaps everything is okay with them, but then we jump cut. It's not even a, a cut, it, it, you know. Not a, it, it's it's a it's like a an intentionally broken edit where we go from this point of view on on uh, rare to back to this objective over the shoulder on her, and we realize mm. that the smile is not a loving smile at Chris or for Chris, but a false smile that she's showing to the table. And that right. she is, you know, projecting as she excuses herself from this environment that she she clearly finds to be, uh, you know, very very unpleasant. Mm. And uh, and 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 then in the present, she tells Chris things like, "I'm not the person I remember. I, I remember things, but I don't remember being there. I don't remember experiencing these things." And uh, I I think all of this especially when i i see that series of shots it it clarifies for me this idea that um when you live with grief the the past and the present are are always happening simultaneously because Mm -hmm. you cannot escape the present in which you live uh and the person you've loved and lost exists only in the past and your idea of them which you carry around with you at all times is sort of the only thing that's that's left and that can become sort of inherently dangerous because the person you've lost becomes contained within your perspective and your perspective is inherently fallible because it is memory Mm -hmm. and whether or not you you intend to you will revise your own history and Mm. what that means is that after they've gone the part of them you interact with is just the mirror of them in yourself um and I think that is true uh regardless of whether or not the sentient ocean of a brain like gas giant um reanimates them in front of you uh or if you are just uh sitting alone thinking about them mm. um and so in that moment uh you know I, I'm sort of thinking about how film can be ambiguous or, or literal but it is always inherently finite uh, because it is mm-hmm. always definable in, in its visual language and its editing and its sound design etc um, these are choices that define the perspective for the viewer in the same way that uh, one's own self defines their perspective on the past and then in turn the present so we are trapped in the perspective of the film in the same way that raya is trapped in chris's perspective of her right. And I think that is most made clear to us uh, in that hard cut at the at the dinner table from the, from the subjective to the objective. That's why I it's my that. eye
3: of the duck. How do you explain that of all the billions of creatures on this planet, we're the only ones who are conscious of our own mortality? You can't explain that. That doesn't mean exactly there's God. God. Exactly. The... Maybe
4: religion has been bred into oh, us. Well, what do you mean? Yeah.
3: Yeah. The Pope is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful <laughs> woman. Nice. A nihilistic shrink. Is there a school? Not yet. (laughs) You see he's funny at least. Where have you been? Away from those fucking people.
4: I love that read.
1: Yeah. It's really intricate. It's like really deep in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always, I feel like, really uh it always unlocks a lot of the director's intention, I feel like, when you start needling through like the cuts, you know. Yeah, the, like I the mean form. if you
0: put one jump cut in your film, yeah, I'm going to fixate on him. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> um, and it's just so interesting that he um i feel like he you know he he's he's this this character is just defined by someone else's perspective of of them um Mm -hmm. and film is a a medium of perspective you know it's it's Mm. it's such an interesting uh interesting way to uh to approach this thing and and just you know it's it's an amazing way of sort of making the the themes of the film the film like tactile and and like you say dom putting building them into the form um because it, it is such a form-forward film, like you know, we've, oh, we've, yeah. we've got this this incredibly built space station with this this practical lighting that's all blue and cold, and and all the shots are like on this this moving you know uh, dolly uh, cart that you know they're all stationary, you know, not stationary, but all um, all smooth and solid. And then we we go to the past, and everything is warm and handheld. Um, it, it, <sighs> it's constantly calling attention to these things.
4: And I think it's also smart, not just about the form, like physically, but also the form of film in that it's quite often used to objectify women in particular. And I think Mm -hmm. that the movie uses that history and that knowledge to its strength and comments on it without making it like an object lesson. And here's how you make a movie Mm -hmm. about a relationship with a woman either. It's just it's so smart and it's so layered and you can read it on so many different levels. And I feel like they all work. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah, it's such a rich movie. I, yeah, um, yeah. I really hope
1: more people, more people see this thing. Yeah. I I mentioned that uh, interview on Charlie Rose, and um, I I also came out of this movie thinking like there are a lot of things here that qualify for the kind of scenes that we talk about on this show. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to Clooney talk about the film, and he said something that I wrote down that I really. It uh it really like stoked my interest because you know, him playing Chris Kelvin, it you know, it's it it's interesting to see where the lead actor thinks this film goes in the end p- portraying this person. And he said this is a film about surrendering to the unknown. Mm. Mm. And at first I was on the fence like thinking about this. I think one of the great like masterpiece like you know, notions of this film, I think, is this very confounding and like uh, rewardingly complicated character transformation that happens at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can look at it from a lot of different angles. So at the end of this film, they realize that it, like the only way to get back to Earth is for them to go back into the Athena and, you know, jettison away from this station. And away from the ever-expanding uh, Solaris field, and you see him with Vail Davis in in the cockpit, and then it's all told in this really kind of like weird, like visual, visually like poetic way, where he he leaves and he goes back into the station. So mm-hmm. you know the Athena drifts away, and he's in the space station, and um, so that moment, that his choice to do that is you know a powerful powerful character choice because essentially what is happening here is that he's choosing to not return to like the world of the living, right?
3: Mm-hmm. He
1: is a grief counselor. He is lost in his grief and he is choosing to, instead of, you know, uh, move through his grief and grow and overcome, he is choosing to return, you know, back into it head first. Mm-hmm. And I find it so fascinating that Clooney sees that choice as like a you know a, almost like an accomplishment or something that that kelvin is like i am going to just surrender myself fully to this grief mm-hmm. um it's it's a very like motivated choice and there's this great monologue that he reads in the end or that he, he uh, it's it's voiceover narration he says um he says earth even the word sounded so strange to me How long had I been gone? How long had I been back? Did it matter? I tried to find the rhythm of the world where I used to live. I followed the current. I was silent, attentive. I made a conscious effort to smile, nod, stand, and perform the millions of gestures that constitute life on earth. I studied these gestures until they became reflexes again. Mm. And everything in there is such a... like perfect uh little nugget of you know living with depression living with grief yeah and mm-hmm. uh you know especially all of us who've come out of this pandemic and like this thing of like standing in a bar and being like i don't know what to do with my hands like yeah. what does everyone I, I, else do i can't
0: believe he like nailed it so well yeah. In, this, in yeah this
1: monologue yeah mm-hmm. and the way that you know i saw this uh this comic once of it was a description of grief, of like, um, you know, uh, mourning someone and how, like, you're carrying such a heavy burden. And, but the weight that you're carrying is the stuff that you are, like, taking from yourself and putting into this burden. And mm-hmm. it just gets heavier and heavier the more, like, focus and, you know, it, and the more interest that you fill this this grief, the bigger and heavier it gets, but it's all coming from you because the person's gone. I mean,
3: mm.
1: in this film, I feel like his uh his grief gets so heavy that it starts to like uh overshadow him as a person. Like as you're saying, Adam, like he's so compelled by this memory, this, you know, fake memory of this person that he misses. And um he starts to lose himself. And that, that is really what happens in the end here that he completely like loses himself to this grief and, and uh, is swallowed up by it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that to me is, is the, the heart of this film is, is him making that choice. And in that final sequence of him leaving the station and the way that time kind of, uh, I think you said this on our 2001 episode, Adam, how time like collapses on itself Mm-hmm. Um, it's this really cool, like, you know, it, it works on all these levels to, you know, pay homage to 2001. And it also kind of fills in some blanks of, of, of the Tarkovsky Solaris. And, uh, it, it leaves you, um, as an audience member wondering, like, is this, you know, a tragedy or is, is this like the greatest thing that this man could ever, is this a gift, you know? Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Depressurize and spin all turbines to stand by. Disengage coupling interlocks and all docking couplers. Vent and seal
3: all main engine propellant lines.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this—it there's, there's, it like gives you the option of reading it either way. And even that that yeah. Clooney quote you, you you brought up, this notion of uh, surrendering to the unknown—is that is that what you said?
1: Yeah, that's what he says on
0: that interview. I mean, that that fits perfectly too because Kelvin is a character who is like a militant atheist who doesn't believe in any kind right, of like right. God or afterlife, and then he's suddenly <laughs> presented with. With evidence of like something, you know, he's being shown like you know, maybe this is God, maybe this is heaven, and maybe all I have to do is accept it, you know, uh, which like is a much nicer way of looking at it versus you know like succumbing to to grief or, or despair. But it's incredible the film could could show you those sequences, and I think you could easily argue in in equally equal measure for both direction.
4: Yeah, I'm inclined to lean towards the slightly more hopeful. Mm-hmm. area and mm-hmm. i think that's because i keep fixating on the Dylan thomas poem that it's like
0: in there we haven't even touched it yeah yeah we missed it yeah.
4: <laughs> and it's it's the poem in death shall have no dominion which is mm-hmm. um in and of itself a quote of um a verse from i think it's the book of romans in the new testament as well oh, where really? it's talking wow. about yeah it's talking about how um uh christ dying and then coming back basically means that death has no dominion over him and therefore sin has Hmm. no dominion over us as well. And so we're not subject to death either. And I read that quotation of that line both as Rea's outlook on life much more than Kelvin's, but I think it also makes me feel much more inclined to feel hopeful about the end of the movie because Ray explicitly tells Kelvin, like, we don't need to think like that anymore when he yeah. asks her if he's dead. Like, death yeah. doesn't mean anything to either of them anymore. And they can continue to live together. And it feels to me as though they get a slightly better, fuller picture of each other. It's it's not just this one dimensional, I'm grieving this person. And so I'm going to project her out into the world it feels a little bit more full and mysterious than that
0: yeah i i I totally agree And, and and even then the 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 camera tells us the same thing where we have these really long point of view shots of them even uh the and the first point of view shot of uh of chris is from really far away and he hmm. and it and it holds for a really long time as he approaches the camera. So it's unlike when uh in the scene I brought up earlier where uh Rhea is glimpsing herself in his like reflection almost. Like here it is, you know, the scene is told from her point of view until it switches to his point of view. So in, right. in that sense, it is very uh it, it is much more of a an even footing. Um and a thing that the Dom and I briefly touched on last week when talking about the the 72 Tarkovsky film is this notion that um Hari, the the wife in that film, she she's getting more human as as things go on, and eventually she's able to uh-huh. to fall asleep. And I was musing, like, oh, like, well, if she can sleep, how do we know that Chris is is Chris and not actually? You know, has is has he been like, Replica. you know, you know, is has he become a construct? Is he an amalgam of himself and her construct of yeah. him? Like, you know, mm. um, the more human she gets, the, you know, the the less, you know, purely him he might be at this point. Um, so I feel like when you get to this ending, like there's absolutely a way that you can look at that and say, like, they are now both constructs of Solaris made in each other's image, um, mm. which would be the most yeah. you know equitable yeah. way of of viewing, uh, viewing where their
1: relationship is reached. Um, I mean, unless I'm missing something, I don't think there's any way you can look at that ending and not see Chris as a replica because we, he's definitely a never replica. see throughout. Yeah. I mean, we never see throughout the film, any evidence that Solaris can like imbue living human beings with any of these like powers. And he cuts his finger and, uh, the wound disappears. So like, so we know pretty conclusively, unless he's dreaming or something that he is a, a vision of Solaris. So what happened to the real mm-hmm. Chris? Like we, we're we not, <laughs> I mean, maybe he's I, I crashed, don't know. crashed yeah, into
0: I mean, the surface of the planet and got absorbed by it. Yeah.
1: But we also don't have any evidence that Solaris can like create entire like environments. I mean, it can create, People, but I mean, maybe when you get so close to the center of it, it gets becomes so powerful, it can create entire worlds from your memory. But uh um, I mean that that would because be they're in their apartment. interpretation, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Especially because you know, I mean, obviously it's an it's an adaptation of a of the same text, but not in the same explicit way. But you know, again, in in the Tarkovsky film, we we were given the notion that after they blast the the planet with chris's brainwaves it starts forming islands and and one of those islands is his house you know um so i would say you know by by adaptation logic (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah, yeah. i think it's capable of creating environments as well as as well as people um Mm -hmm. yeah there's
1: so much to to unpack of this final sequence i love it
0: yeah Mm -hmm. it's so good
1: this movie just (laughs) did we did we say the uh can you tell me what's happening here and he says, "I could tell you what's happening, but I don't know if it would really tell you what's happening." I, I
4: love that line so. I much. I almost
1: like I like when when he first said that. I was like, "Fuck, is this
0: my eye of the duck? <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's amazing. And then uh, the other line I I really love is when, I mean, this because the film is so um, explicitly and implicitly about grief. There are and, and about depression. There are so many pieces of dialogue here that. Um, just uh, just feel so uh true and real to the at least from from my perspective of the lived experience of either a grieving or be having uh living with depression um mm-hmm. but just that notion of um rea saying things like uh i don't remember experiencing those things uh and i you know uh <sighs> i remember this but i don't remember seeing this and i don't remember being there like that i mean t- for me at least that is very much what it's like to, yeah. to live with depression where you know someone yeah. will even recount a thing that you you have done or a place you've been to and it it just feels like you know another person uh did that um mm-hmm. you know it's it's so effective um and even in the beginning of the film there's one of these people at uh at grief counseling says The more I see the images, the less I feel, the less I believe that it's real. And that too feels like, you know, walking through the world with depression where, you know, or or, or grief similarly, you know, the, the, everything you see and you see it over and over and over again, it just, it loses all meaning entirely.
1: And I, I, I kind of come down on the more like tragic ending of this that I think it's such a compelling and, and like kind of devastating notion to end on that like you can let this grief like compound and compound and compound and you can let this fake idea of this person from your past like get so real and yet so far from what she actually was you know when you know when she was alive like Mm -hmm. when when your grief takes over and um you 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 know, you tell stories to yourself of what a person was like and over the years and over time, that story becomes more and more just a story and less even based in reality. And that notion at the end of this film that like, you can, you can, like, you can let that completely take on a life of its own. And then you can abandon like the work on yourself and just go live in that. Like you can do that, but it, you'll be like gone from our reality. Like mm-hmm. yeah. if you want to just abandon, you know, the world of the living and like just live in your past and your depression, you can do that. That's available to you as a person. And that I kind of think that that is, you know, it works from a screenwriting point of view. I think I'm no, I'm no expert, but like he needs, I feel like this character needs to find that catharsis. And it's so brilliant that like he finds it, like he gets what he wants, but uh, I don't know if that's like <laughs> what a grief counselor would want you to do. You know? <laughs> yeah. A grief
0: counselor definitely wouldn't be like, I think you should allow yourself to become subsumed and live in an alien yeah. snow globe. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love that though.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a picture. Um, it's tremendous. Yeah. I, I really, I, I, I'm, I'm calling our shot here. Like we're like, at some point during the lifespan of this podcast, we will host a screening of this in a movie theater. Like I'm just Hell such a yes. good idea. calling a shot. Yeah, like I'm it's going to happen.
4: <laughs> I don't care how, how far I have to travel to yeah, do it. I'm coming. I'm gonna, yeah. Yeah.
1: Fly you in from Chicago. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah.
0: Yes. Any, any closing thoughts on
1: Solaris? I mean, a lot, but I've <laughs> already <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> been here for two hours. So. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, there's one thing, and I don't know if y'all uncovered this in the research Mm -hmm. phase or not, but there's shots on Earth where um, George Clooney is just going about his day. And I think there's a filter on the screen where you can see like a slightly darker band above the top of the screen. I'm pretty sure it's an actual filter that they used. Yeah,
0: Um, uh, I I noticed that. Uh, I I didn't get... I didn't notice that. Yeah, I didn't get a direct like, you know, here's what it is. But um, my assumption uh, is that it is uh, a graduated neutral density filter, um, Mm. which uh, Mm. would would be dropping the exposure at the at one end of the image. And that would be lessened uh, towards the other end of the image. Um, Mm. Yeah,
4: it's such a great piece of like using the tools that you're not supposed to use in order to tell something like
0: yeah, because yeah. typically the 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 reason you would use a a graduated ND filter like that would be so that you could make a a blown out sky. Uh, you know, you could bring back, you you could you could reduce the exposure in a blown out sky without affecting the things in the foreground beneath that. Um, that are on the ground. Uh, but instead he's not bringing back any information in the <laughs> sky. It's still blown out and gray. He's just adding like what feels like a very physical weight to the frame and to clear. Yeah you know it's so good yeah it's awesome
4: that's all I have I just I love that piece (laughs) no I'm glad you brought that
0: up it's a great it's a great
1: thing to end on yeah thanks for coming and uh, sharing this with us uh, yeah thank you so much for having me on
4: I adore this movie and it had been several years since I'd watched it I've actually been looking for the excuse to watch this for probably about a year and a half now and I just had never gotten around to it so I'm really glad to have been able to sit down and watch it again and then talk about it
1: And you'll get another excuse when we do the uh, Eye of the Duck repertory screening.
4: (laughs) Hell yes. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com. If you'd like to join the conversation about movies, movie scenes, and all things film, find an invite link to Eye of the Discord in our show notes. And Sarah, thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, it is always a pleasure to have you here and, and talk about the movies with you. Um, where can our listeners find you and your work uh, out in the world?
4: Thank you so much for having me. This was a, an absolute delight and uh, one of my all-time favorite movies. So I was really glad yes. to be able to talk about it with you guys. Yes. Um, listeners can find me all over the internet, Probably, unfortunately, still on Twitter at Dodgy Boffin. (laughs) Um, I also have a website, dodgyboffin.com, with links to um, social media, my Letterboxd, and my newsletter as well. I write things weekly um, just about movies, and um, I also podcast for Seeing and Believing Pod, uh, which is a weekly film review podcast uh, where we'll review new releases, and sometimes we'll pair them with older releases as well. Um, You can find that on basically wherever you can find podcasts.
1: You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero or on my website at domnero.com.
0: And you can find me on social media at Adam Vol, That's V O L E. And you can watch my films online at adamvolerich.com, That's V O L E R I C H.
1: The main soundtrack in our episode intro is the recording of Strauss's On the Beautiful Blue Danube that's heard in 2001 A Space Odyssey. The audio cues are pulled from various space movies that we cover in this series. The music you're hearing right now is the recording of Cacciatorian's Gay & A Ballet Suite, also from 2001, A Space Odyssey. And our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thank you, Eric. And special thanks to Parth Marate for providing research for this episode.
0: Thanks, Parth. Next week... We are watching Apollo 13 from 1995, which you can yeah. stream. Yes, very excited to, to be yeah. doing Apollo 13. It's going to be a great time. Uh, and you can stream Apollo 13 with a subscription to USA or Fubo TV. Or you can rent and buy it from your favorite video. My <laughs> favorite you can rent streaming
3: Or buy it from your favorite video. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fucking stop that. <laughs>
1: I feel like we are getting closer and closer to a real, like, FUBU sponsorship. <laughs> this could be a Fubo podcast. Anything
0: could happen. <laughs> uh, or you can rent or buy the film from your favorite video-on-demand platform. Everybody knows what my favorite is. <laughs> <laughs> and the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on The Duck.
3: it's full
1: of stars Hey prime members you can listen to I the duck early and ad free on Amazon Music download the Amazon Music app today or you can listen ad free with Wondery Plus in Apple
0: Podcasts Before you go tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com/survey
1: If you're listening to this podcast then chances are good you are a fan of the strange dark and mysterious